you know, alcohol, it was always a thing in my family because we have, I have a lot of uncles and they were big drinkers and I loved them. Like when they were drunk, they were like so funny and they were like, you know, like my heroes. Like I wanted to be like that when uh, I grew up. Welcome to Recovery Edge Cast. My name is Kayla and I'm an alcoholic. I'll be your host today and I am here with the creator of Recovery Edge Cast, Alfredo. Hi, Kayla. Hi. Alfredo, what are you up to these days? Um, well, I'm doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm doing meetings, in person meetings, believe it or not. And uh, I build websites for a living. So. So, yeah, I'm a busy guy. You are very busy. Yeah. Well, I think you're warmed up now. I feel warmed up. I've been thinking about this all day. (laughs) Okay, well, why don't you tell us what what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now? All right. Well, my name is Alfredo, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I grew up in a small town in Colorado called Frederick. Um, it's in the Tritown area, as it's probably more well-known as Carbon Valley, I guess. Um, I uh, went to school there for my entire life. Uh, you know, my dad, when I grew up, he was into computers, and so he brought computers home that he was fixing. And he was a, uh, a lead technician for Apple back then. Um, so as soon as I could move a mouse around, I was like, this is what I want to do when I'm old. You know, when I grow up, is probably what I said back <laughs> then. This is what I do when mm-hmm. I grow up. I want to work on computers. Um, so that was kind of my thing through my childhood and my teenage years. I was always on a computer. Uh, in high school, I did the newspaper, the layouts on this black and white Macintosh. Um, and that was... That used to be what I was addicted to was just my computers, you know. Uh, I, I was like the first guy ever in Frederick, and I know this, who bought his own laptop and took it to school. Like, that was me. I was that kid, you know. Worked at the truck wash, washing trucks all summer just to get my computer. Um, it was great. You know, That was uh, that's kind of what I was known for back then. Um, you know, alcohol... It was always a thing in my family because we have, I have a lot of uncles and they were big drinkers and I loved them. Like when they were drunk, they were like so funny and they were like, you know, like my heroes. Like I wanted to be like that when uh, I grew up. So th- I had that going for me, which maybe wasn't so much a positive thing, um, but I took my first drink, I'd say when I was like 17, I bet, something like that. Before that, I was a good kid. Uh, I remember when my uncle got married and we went to, like afterwards we had that like party and stuff and they offered me a beer. I think I was like 16 and I uh, declined it and they told me that I was such a good kid and everything. Um, that might have been like the last beer I ever declined. <laughs> uh, it was when I hit 17 is uh, when my sister had started dating this guy who was, uh, he, you could say he was like a gangster guy. You know, he was pretty mm-hmm. urban and the crowd that I started hanging out with a little bit, not too much, um, were like like these gangbangers almost, you know. Um Maybe they weren't gangbanger, gangbangers. Maybe they were just cholos, for like you know. <laughs> but I'd started like really appreciating that lifestyle, like the way they dressed and talked, and the music really drew me in. And um, I knew that uh, my uh, one of my childhood heroes, Easy E, you know, my favorite rapper ever, mm-hmm. drank forties because I saw his cassette tape and he was drinking a 40 you know (laughs) so 
I was kind of drawn and attracted to the lifestyle, but I wasn't like that guy. You know, I was busy running track in high school and working on the newspaper, um, being productive. Those were the things that kept me in school because I wasn't interested in science and math. My grades were like, eh, you know, I got by. Um, but I don't think if I were had those activities at school for me, I would have made it through. I don't know if I would have cared that much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm getting into this music and stuff. It's fun. Um, there's a party thrown. I think it's for my sister's birthday or something. And uh, they bring beer. And I've been to parties where there's beer and I don't really... I declined it, you know, whatever, nobody cares. But, you know, this time they gave me one and, you know, I want to be down, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm that guy. Actually, I really wasn't. Like, the girls hated me. They're like, <laughs> dork, you know. But I wanted to be down, you know. So I took the 40 that they, they gave me. And uh, I think it was Old English, actually. Or Mickey's. One of those. A classic. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Um. And I hated it. And I was just like, this is disgusting, man. And I remember the guy telling me, you got to drink through it. You'll see. Okay. Well, it didn't take long for me to be like, wow, where's this stuff been my whole life? Like, this is the stuff, you know? Um, after that, I started being like a weekend drinker. Uh, I would have like people that would buy me liquor because I wasn't old enough. But I knew people, family members, I'm not going to snitch, but, you know, <laughs> they were my cool family members who would buy for me. And uh, I had my drinking buddy, too, you know, so we kind of drank together a lot. Um, and I would, I puked pretty early on a lot, you know, but it was more of a weekend thing for me at that point. Uh, sometimes we couldn't get on the weekends fine um so i quickly remember my senior year declining in everything i loved doing for some reason i didn't care if i could finish a race or if we went to state and cross country uh i i really was proud of being like the fastest guy in my school and i was i mean for like the one mile and the half mile i was pretty damn fast um, I remember going on the track and just seeing kids from the other schools who recognized me and they were like, oh, snap, this guy, you know, and I was like, yeah, this guy, you know, I was badass. Um, I wasn't the fastest, fastest in the state, but around my town, I was pretty fast. And uh, after I started drinking, I don't, I couldn't understand why, but I just didn't care about winning anymore. I didn't care about finishing the race. Um, I didn't care about being that fast. And back then I didn't know why, but I was just like, I kind of blamed it on work because I was working part time. And I was like, maybe I'm working too much. You know, can't be the booze, you know. Not at all. But, you know, I noticed that I went downhill. My uh, participation in the high school paper pretty much went downhill that year. Um, and all I really cared about was just paying my car and partying. That was what I wanted to do at that point. When I finished high school, I told my parents, I'm going to take a year off to figure things out or something like that. Truth is, I couldn't handle going to classes. I was busy drinking, you know, and I tried. I went to class and took like Java and JavaScript and stuff was like way over my head. I was like, I can't do this. So I just continued to work at, um, I don't know, some place where they, they used to work on magazines. Um, so my drinking is getting closer to a daily thing because I'm getting closer to 21. And eventually, of course, I hit 21. And I remember when I hit 21, I went to the liquor store. And I remember the liquor store it was in Del Camino, and it just last year went out of business but it was always there and I got like this blue bottle of tequila it had a tarantula on the cover 
I had no idea. I just thought it looked cool. And I was like, I've arrived. If I can drink this, you know, nice. Um, I don't remember how I felt the next day, but I remember that moment because that was like my uh, spiritual awakening. Oh, you know, um, it wasn't long after that where I just thought, uh, I could buy this every day and drink this every day. Like, why doesn't everybody else, you know? So I started drinking every day. Throughout this wreck, I had started wrecking relationships and uh, really pushing it. Um, I had a, an ego because my dad was a cop growing up, and I got away with a lot. Cops would pull us over as kids and just look in the back seat, and there I was, and they'd be like, you guys can go you know, and they'd be like, thank that guy, you know. So I started feeling like I could get away with a lot. So rules didn't really apply to me. I could drive drunk. I could drink every day, whatever, whatever. Uh, the police department in Erie one time had called me to actually drink for them. Uh, because they wanted to do these DUI tests for their rookie cops. That's like every alcoholic dream. I know. They paid for it. They brought food. <laughs> and I was like, and in my mind, I thought, cool, I can practice, you know. Mm -hmm. So I know what to expect. If I ever get a DUI, I can get away with it. And, you know, I, I, apparently I turned into an asshole, you know, believe it or not. And that was my thing. When I got drunk, I was an asshole. <laughs> um, so that was kind of funny. I had moments in high school where the cops would break up a house party, you know, and kids would scatter, you know. And one time I drove there. I, oh, did I drive there? I don't remember. But I was there and the cops walked in and they recognized me and they were like, oh, hey, Alfredo or Junior or whatever they called me. I have the same name as my dad. <laughs> so they're like, are you, have you been drinking? Are you drunk? And I was, but I was like, no. And they were like doing this test on me. And they're like, ah, get out of here. We're just kidding. Actually, can you uh, drive your dad's patrol car home? Because he's um, on duty tonight. So I was like, yeah. Um, so there me and my girlfriend at that time were like in the cop car driving it up the street. Just like maybe 10 blocks home. But I'm drunk. And she's like, damn, yeah. And I was like, I know, I know, you know. Like invincible, man. You know, nothing can stop me. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to throw that story out there, you know. So you could see that this is building up to like, I can get away with anything type of guy, type yeah. of attitude. So, you know, I'm 21. I'm drinking every day. And my relationships are just burning to the ground. I can't keep a, a girlfriend the term alcoholic starts coming out from others. Um, and I got my DUI. I got my DUI. I uh, totaled my car. And it was... Uh, I love that car. It was a red 96 Ford Probe. Worst name ever, but I <laughs> loved the car. I loved that car. Had some rims and everything. Um, that night I went to, uh, here's the weird thing about that night. My older cousin had said, let's go drinking. Let's go to the bar tonight after work. And I used to work at my mom's restaurant and I was like, all right, sounds good. And I was like hyped up in my head. Like I was already like, oh, we're going to do this, you know, but then he bailed on me, but the adrenaline had already started inside. And I was like, I have to go drink. So I did. Mm -hmm. I went to the strip club all by myself. <laughs> got a bunch of ones. Drank a lot. And then uh, I drove home. And I remember pulling up, driving on I-25 and coming up on the Erie exit. And I was like, oh shit, I'm going to miss the exit. So I turned right, but it was too late. I, I took the turn just a second too late and spun my car Ooh. and hit the hit the wall there whatever and uh my car wasn't starting 
and my cell phone was dead. So I sat there and just uh, passed out. And then the cop came. I don't know what time it was. I don't remember what he told me. You've been drinking, whatever. As if he had to ask, you know. Um, I think they did the roadside on me. They didn't take blood. They just made me blow probably and um, took me in. And I was an asshole, of course. This was post 9-11. So you weren't to be messing with authority, you know, at this point. And they weren't taking my shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, in a moment of clarity, all it took was, you're going to go to jail if you don't shut up. I was like, all right, I'll behave. You know, um, I went to detox up in Greeley and uh, stayed the night there and had to call my parents the next day. And my mom flipped. Like, she was just glad I didn't die or whatever, but they flipped. Um, my dad picked me up that morning, or it was probably like 11 o'clock, and I wasn't blowing zeros. Um, I think they cheated when they let me go. They just kind of stuck it in my mouth and pulled it out and said, all right, go, go ahead. Because they knew I had a ride there, you know, my dad. And I had to pay to get out. So I pulled out my wallet and paid in ones. So, because I had a lot of ones that night. What a glory moment. <laughs> I know. Um, and at that point, I knew that I had a problem. But I was still in denial. Like, I felt more like it was bad luck. You know, it was just like, if I just didn't turn late, if I just said fuck it I'll take the next exit I wouldn't be in this mess but I was in this mess and uh, I did the uh, the classes and everything I started going to school because I was like I'm going to get my life together because I'm done with the partying and I'm done with the women like I'm just going to focus on my career mm -hmm. so I did that I went to school and did that and I took the alcohol classes and those are boring um, but mm -hmm. you know Whatever, they, they served the purpose for me at that point. Um, and I had to keep going to court to pay stuff. And actually, I had to buy baby stuff, baby diapers. Um, the point is that I was paying the price, but I wasn't learning my lesson. I just felt like consequences, you know, part of life. Yeah, I still drank. But at this point, I had become more of a closet drinker because I know my parents and my family kind of looked down on it. Um, so, you know, I'm starting to go a little nuts, and I'm going to the doctor after all this, and I'm like, you know, I uh, want to quit drinking. Can you, like, give me some abuse or something? And he was like, yeah, you know, Alfredo, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you're going to quit drinking uh, at this age because um, some people, like, if you drank like this forever, you wouldn't make it to 40. Like, you would die by 40. And, you know, I was like, damn um doing math in my head so i got like 15 years of drinking left that's what i thought you know mm -hmm. that's how my mind worked you know always looking for a loophole or something um he gave me the abuse, and the problem with the abuse is that i just didn't want to take it anymore because i was taking it i wasn't drinking but then one time i drank and it killed me it made me feel like shit so i was like okay well i guess i can't drink and abuse anymore <laughs> <laughs> you know um and that's kind of how my alcoholism went like everything else went away um if i got sick i wouldn't take medicine because i would read the back of the label and it would say do not take with alcohol and i'd be like well i guess i'm not taking this you know yeah. Because I knew I was going to drink that day. So everything took a back seat. Relationships and work. And, um, you know, I finished school. Um, I did okay with my higher education. I mean, I don't know. It was an art degree in, in like, graphics. Like, whatever, <laughs> you know. It, it wasn't hard for me because I grew up doing the stuff. Yeah. So I... I didn't really party with anybody back then. I was starting to drink 
alone by myself mm. because I was getting scared already drinking in public. The DUI did give me something, and it was like, um, don't drink out there anymore. Drink at home. So I became that guy just coming home and drinking all by myself. And basically my career and everything revolved around drinking at this point. I made room for you as long as you didn't get in the way of my drinking. So I held a job. I worked, you know, Monday through Friday doing web stuff. Uh, I wasn't really hitting my potential, of course. I never got fired because of my drinking, but I never kept a job either necessarily, you know. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't like getting better at my craft. So one day I uh, decided that, well, one day I had noticed that I was having like awful behavior. Like I would just like chat with women like on the computer or on the phone or whatever. Women I had no business chatting with. And I always knew that in the back of my head that this isn't going to end well. You know, the type of women I was chatting with, it wasn't going to end well. Um, so I would wake up and I'd be like, I'm not doing that again. But I would do it again because I would black out. And I was like, damn, you know, um, I can't believe I, I just did again what I said I wasn't going to do again. The reason that that stuff scares me to death so much is because my dad's father died when he went out on my grandma. Um, he messed with the wrong girl and he was shot. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> so wow. that always, that was always in the background like, I'm going to go out like that one day. I just know it because I keep messing with the wrong women and it's going to happen. The only problem now is that alcohol was ruining my judgment like I had no judgment I was messing with the wrong women it didn't matter and I was finally scared to death I, I can't control this anymore I can't do this so I googled my first AA meeting um, I shouldn't say it's my first I tried going to a couple in my 20s because the doctor also gave me a psychiatrist and she was like try it you know, when I did and I went, I was like, oh, this isn't for me, you know. Plus, the guy in the AA meeting I went to also said, I'm glad you're doing this at this age before you start coughing up blood <laughs> like I did. And then I was like, well, I ain't coughing up blood yet. I don't belong here, you yep. know. That's how my brain worked. Always found a way out. Um, So, you know, I go to my first AA meeting. I'm like, I don't know, 36 or something like that. And um, the voice in my head is also the doctor telling me, you're going to be dead at 40. You know, and I'm like, that clock is ticking. Uh, yeah, I go to my first day meeting, and I don't know anything. You know, they're like, you want to introduce yourself? And I introduce myself as, uh, you know, I'm a functioning alcoholic, I told them. I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> like, what the fuck is a functioning alcoholic? And they just laughed. And mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> and uh, they asked me to share a little bit about myself. And I was like, I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm just checking this out. You know, you know, later on, I had a guy tell me, you know, what a functioning alcoholic just means that you're vertical, you know. <laughs> and I was like, true. And frankly, I'm not always vertical. So I don't even qualify. So I came to the rooms of AA um, basically out of fear and a lot of shame, a lot of shame that, uh, of the things I was doing that I said I wouldn't do anymore because I know that it wasn't natural for me to be like that. I don't want to be that, that guy, you know, and I started becoming that scumbag guy that women would be like, uh, you know, get away from me. You know, they would, um, who can blame them? I was, it took, I had to get wasted to talk to anyone, you know? Um, I uh, met one of these, uh, one of my old childhood uh, 
well, high school sweethearts. Um, we connected again, like when I was 30. It took her one night to, you know, text me and be like, I want nothing to do with you. You know, I don't want that drama. Because it was. I could not, even for that night, not get drunk. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew that if I did, I was going to fuck this up. I fucked it up. <laughs> Whatever, you know. Um, but me and, and relationships were always kind of weird like that. Uh, as a teenager, the first girl I fell in love with died in a car accident. And when you're like 16 or 17, that does something to your mental. It's like, we're supposed to be like invincible, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but I'll get back to that in a second. Um, oh, how your relationships were weird, that they've always been kind of weird. Yeah, so I don't think that I held the same value in relationships as a mm -hmm. normal person would. I kind of thought, I don't know if I thought they were disposable, but I knew they weren't forever, you yep. know, because she could be gone like that. Yeah. So I never treated them like they were going to be forever. And if they left, <laughs> you know, have a drink. That's what I did. Uh, so, you know, this program taught me to really stay in the moment and to enjoy the moment so I can cherish these relationships, not just women, but family and people in general, of course. Um, so I start going to these meetings. I'm going to the Happy Trudgers group in Denver. That was, I like to call it my work meeting, you know, because uh, I would go during my work, my lunch hour. And I just started going there every day. Uh, you know, my boss had seen me a shit show on business trips um, a few times. I just became a shit show. I would go to, like one time we were in Austin. I'm almost done with the drunkologues here, trust me. But I just remembered this story. <laughs> you know, we were in a hotel bar and uh, I was already getting drunk. And this uh, this big guy comes in and he says something uh, something really personal like "fuck you," and um, just kidding. It was a blonde chick, and she said <laughs> "fuck the Raiders," you know, like same thing though. <laughs> to me, it was like yeah. just as offensive. Like you, you might as well be talking about my mom. But she said something like "the Raiders suck." I'm a big Raiders fan, and. I don't know what I said, but I thought it was hilarious to her. And her friend was like, ugh, like this guy, the same look that I was used to, like, this guy's disgusting. And they kicked me out of the bar, out of my own hotel. And I was like, where am I supposed to go? To my room? You know, it's like <laughs> being sent to your room as an adult. How embarrassing. You know, now I think back on it, I was like, oh, so pathetic, you know. But these are the things that they saw me at work do. And sometimes I'd have to apologize the next day to my coworkers and whatever. And um, so when I started going to AA during lunch, at first they would be like, where are you going? And I'd just be like, I'm just going to go for a walk. And then I started kind of saying, uh, I just go and kind of meditate, you know. Never really said I'm going to AA meeting, you know, because, oh, this was private. And plus, I really wasn't getting it. You know, I wasn't ready. Um, but as I started going there every day, I just started like picking up. I, I was getting more sober time than ever, but I wasn't uh, connecting to God. So it was temporary. Um, I would get some sober time, then I would slip. And then I would like go back into the room and cry and tell them I'm so pathetic and whatever. And they'd be like, Alfredo, welcome back. And after a while, I started thinking, you know what? I might be getting off on the pity, you know? Like, that could be a thing. Like, mm -hmm. I need to stop this shit and be a man. And I'm miserable drunk, and I'm miserable sober. So I might as well just try to be sober and miserable, you know? <laughs> because I'm going to be in these AA rooms anyways. Let's try it sober. I don't know. My, my mind has a weird way of encouraging me. It's uh. so I decided, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to really try. 
And um, on my final relapse, I uh, it was a it was right around this time that me and my friends were going to meet at, a, at an arcade. And I had like 45 days or something, and I was like kind of nervous. Um, they said they were going to meet me there, and they, uh, they were late. Mm. And this arcade had a bar. So I was kind of pacing up and down, and it was a blizzard outside, a blizzard. And they were driving from like 20 miles away, so they were going to be late. And I stood at that bar and I saw like this drink and I was like, whoa, I never seen a blue drink. That looks awesome. And I started pacing because that's what I would do. I would pace because I was having this war in my head. Are you going to drink or are you not going to drink? It's the same war that I used to have in the parking lot of a liquor store when I'd sit there for like a half hour debating with myself. Are you going to go in or are you going to go home? I lost that battle a lot. And on that night, I lost it because I said, well, if you're going to be miserable sober, you might as well be miserable drunk. Yes. Actually, I think that's reverse logic of what I just said earlier. You see how <laughs> my brain plays tricks on me just to justify anything. And I drank that night, and I drank a lot. And um, I'm surprised we didn't get kicked out because I was getting the uh from people, you know, like... Don't talk to me. You know, you're you're disgusting or whatever. I thought I was funny. I thought I was like the funniest guy in the fucking room. Like, <laughs> if these people knew how brilliant I was, they have no sense of humor. Whatever. Yeah. Like, really, that douchebag that nobody wants to be around. Um, and on that night, I was supposed to go back to my girlfriend's house. She lives like mm, three miles away from the bar. And I called her, and she was probably like, are you drunk? And I was like, fuck you, you know, whatever. I drove home, 20 miles away at least, in a blizzard, drunk. Um, that was not good. My friends also did the same thing, but they totaled their car that night. And that was another one of those aha moments that, dude, you're playing Russian roulette. Like, the writing on the wall is getting bigger and these things are getting closer. It's only a matter of time till you kill yourself, someone else, whatever. The consequences are coming soon. Plus, at this point, I've already heard all the spew in AA. So it's not fun to drink and have mm -hmm. AA in your head. It sucks. But I knew that the end was coming at that point. I looked back and I had a friend who was killed by a drunk driver. Um, you know, we used to go to church together and we worked together. And one night, him and his little sister were going to work like at 4 a.m. on the S-curves near Fort Lupton. And a car hit them, a drunk driver hit them and killed them both. Um, on the other side of the coin, I also have a good friend who killed somebody driving drunk who did time in prison. He was like 21 when he did this. And he's a free man now. You know? No one's invincible. And I probably drank and drove more than these guys. So my luck was running out. I knew my luck was running out. It just started to pile on me, you know? These mm -hmm. consequences that... This is Russian roulette for me. And it's coming. And it was weighing on me because I knew I wasn't invincible. So my last drink, quite pathetic, nothing exciting. I just woke up the next day and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And I, uh, I finally prayed to God and said, you know what? I don't want to be cool anymore. I'm just going to do what these people tell me in the rooms. I'm done. I don't care what that means. I'm done. God help me. So that was my last drink, and I had to go back to the rooms. And I remember going to, um, what's it called? Uh, the meeting in Longma of Sunset. Silver I, Solutions? Mm hmm. 5 p.m. <clears throat> mm hmm. And it was around like January 
second or something and just crying to them. I can't do this. And I fucked up again. You know, Michael was like my sponsor. I Poor guy. I did an <laughs> awful job as a sponsee. But I took him to the side and I was like, I relapsed again and whatever. As if I thought it was like a big old announcement. Like, oh my God, Michael, you're never going to believe this, but I relapsed again, you know? And now I look at it like, well, of course you did, you know? And now I look at it like, damn, I'm lucky I made it back. I'm, I'm damn lucky I made it back. And what I started doing is service work, a lot of service work. I had to stay busy. My first year, I was one of these type of guys that couldn't go out to Applebee's, you know? I had to go to work and go home and go to meetings. I couldn't go anywhere where they were serving liquor because I couldn't. Mm -hmm. um, it was triggering. Um, so my first year was a lot of AA, work and home. Now, that did me good for a while. But around the seven-month mark, as I sat there playing Xbox at home for like hour number 10, I thought, this isn't going to work. Like, this is it. Is this life now? This sucks. I'm going to relapse again. So I, uh, at that point is when I decided to expand my spiritual connection with God. So I got up and uh, went to this old church in Frederick that I used to go to as a kid, actually. Or my parents took me there. It was a Spanish church. And, you know, I walked in and the same people are still there. They're like 20 years older now. <laughs> but damn, they're like still there. And I'm like, welcome back, you know. And uh, I've been going ever since, you know. Go like twice a week or something. And they welcome me and, um, you know, they just think I'm great, you know. Whatever. I'm like the youngest guy there. So <laughs> I go, you know, because it's nice to be the youngest guy somewhere. <laughs> But um, it's really helped ground me in my, uh, in my prayer. And I tell you, um, for me, there's nothing like picking up like the Bible or even like the big book and just reading it yourself. You get the interpreter out of the way, whatever. Because there's just nothing like reading the black and white yourself and forming your own opinion and thought. It's like magic. So that's what I do now. And AA taught me that. Take what you like, leave the rest. Find what works for these guys. You know? Um, I have more of an open mind now. I don't... I, I've never met anybody who has agreed with me 100% on everything. That includes my church. You know? Just because I disagree with the way somebody believes or something doesn't mean I quit. You know? Same thing in AA. Um, as you can see, what really helped get me sober was not only step work, service work, but that connection to God. Because without God, I was just sitting there making, doing the motions. Um, and I was feeling exhausted and bored. As 2020 hit, you know, I lost all of that stuff. I lost my meetings. I lost my church. Um, I lost work. I mean, I was working from home, but I lost people, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's when I discovered how much heart I wasn't putting into any of this stuff. I was just going through the motions. Uh, I went through a heartbreak during that period. And for the first time, I had to sit there with my feelings. Like I'd never been through a, heart, through a heartbreak sober. Never. Mm. And it was one of those things where I was like, God, I don't want to be here. I want to put a gun in my head, but I won't. But I don't want to be here. But I don't want to drink either. And apparently that's progress, you know? Yeah. That's what somebody told me. Yep. Oh, you want to kill yourself, but you don't want to drink? That's progress. 
all right, if you say so. But that was the first time I really sat down with some really dark um, feelings, depression, whatever, and just stared at it, dealt with it. And because of this program, I knew that I could take action. And I called my friend Dan, who's kind of like a pseudo-sponsor of sorts with me. And I love that guy. He, uh, you know, we went through and did some step work on this. And when I was finished, I wasn't mad anymore. I was almost ashamed at my own behavior. And, um, you know, it is what it is. So I've learned a lot sober, but going through hard feelings is really tough. That's one of the things I learned that um, it's, if you're on the pink cloud, just uh, keep living, you know, because it doesn't it didn't last for me, of course. You know, at first being sober was the new high for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 2020 was rough. My mom around Thanksgiving got hit with COVID. Yeah. And, um, you know, she wasn't going to make it. It was that bad. She went through the ringer. She was away for two months. She did make it, but... I had some really dark moments there where I remember thinking there's nothing I can do. You can't visit your mom. All you can do is pray. And we were talking to my mom on FaceTime still, maybe once a day because her strength was going away. And she had all these, like, I don't know. What do you call those those things, Those these tubes? All these tubes coming her out face. of her. Yeah. yeah. And I remember her crying to me, telling me, I want to go home. Mm. And I thought that was going to be the last conversation I would hear from my mom. And it broke my heart. It killed me. Just thinking that's the last thing my mom's going to say. I want to go home. You know, we were able to talk again before she was uh, put on, um, what do you call it? Um, A ventilator? Yeah, the ventilator. Mm-hmm. And we were afraid of that. She didn't want to be on the ventilator. But there was a woman named Joan from the Denver group, Happy Trudgers, who uh, comforted me and my sister because I think she's a nurse and her husband is in the business as well. So they know this stuff. And they gave us some assurance that this is the right next thing to do. And so, you know, I prayed with my mom before she went under. And she was under for like at least three weeks, I think, something like that, on a Mm. ventilator. And all I could do was get reports from my sister and the nurses about all these oxygen numbers and things. Um, You know, for a while there was no improvement. Nothing was looking that good. And doctors, you know, there's a reason they don't write Hallmark cards because they don't really uh, put roses around what they Mm -hmm. say. They just, they don't cherry coat it. They give it to you straight, and if it's not great news, it sounds like awful news. Um, But the program and AA were so supportive around this time, praying for my mom, calling me. Um, I was calling them, and they were listening to me. And this is where I learned how powerful prayer really can be. I kind of think that, you know, that God has... It's kind of like a satellite receiver, and if you can just, I don't know, tune in the right way that you'll see what God really wants you to see and understand, like a channel or something. Um, But when my mom was down under and I thought she wasn't going to make it, that's the first time that I, like, heard a voice in my head. And I know it sounds kooky, but I was crying basically on the kitchen floor. I thought it was hopeless and over. And, you know, I hear this voice just say, have you lost hope? Like a question, like a test. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, because it's not over until God says it's over. And I'm projecting into the future here with some kind of expectation or definition that I made up that I have no business making up. My mom's still alive and uh, I'm going to keep praying and doing everything I can. That's all I could have really done. 
um, you know, eventually my mom pulls through, though. It wasn't pretty. She was, uh, you know, she came out and she was like, you know, she was like lost in space for a while because of all the drugs and everything mm -hmm. and hallucinating. And I, I was starting to worry. I was like, oh, my gosh, she ever going to get her mind back? You know, these things that, you know, like, I'm just happy she's breathing. Um, you know, she came back from it and we're super lucky. You know, today she's home and uh, she's walking and she's cooking and she's like back to normal almost. And, you know, I tell people, man, I used to pray like five times a day asking God, bring my mom back. And now I should be praying five times a day thanking God for Ooh. what he did. Ooh. You think I'm doing that? Of course not, you know. Why? <laughs> I don't know. But I thank God every day still, you know. Um, the power of prayer. It's, it's cool to see it in action. And um, I thought she was a goner, you know. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is when I thought she was a goner, my mind said, why even stay sober if your mom's not alive? Mm. But still, I didn't drink. I was like, hmm. God, I really don't want that hangover. And I know it's not the right thing to do anyways. For some reason, God wanted me to go through that situation sober. Because if I didn't, I would miss out on whatever he wanted to teach me. And I'm so glad I didn't miss out on it. Because two months could have went by like that. Mm -hmm. Wasted. You know. So that's one of those things. Went through it sober. I sat down with, you know, I thought heartbreak was tough. But this, <laughs> I was like, holy crap. This is when I want to put the gun in my mouth. It's, it sounds awful to say that. But I guess that's the only way I can describe the worst depression you've ever had. Sober, you know. And today, she's alive. I'm going to meetings. I'm still sober. And, um, you know, our Friday night meeting is like one of the funnest parts of the week. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's like the fun, like people who go there are just like, this meeting is so fun. It's so great. And the meeting where it's held at, I hadn't been to that church since my girlfriend's funeral when I was a teenager. Mm. And when they announced it was moving there, I was like, oh, hell no. You know, I told myself I would never step foot in that place again. But I did. And you know what? It's okay. It's okay. I'm supposed to be there. Things are supposed to go full circle like that, I think. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing service work now. It can, you know, I keep doing more service work. Like, they keep pushing me. I was a GSR, <laughs> and that was, you know, that was fun. You know, you go to these meetings and talk. And then at the GSR meeting, they pushed me into the DCM meeting, and these guys are like, oh, my God, Alfredo, you're doing great and everything. And I forget. I was like, well, you kind of made me, you know. You just kind of <laughs> pushed me into this. Like, I, almost like I didn't have a choice or a say in the matter. But, you know, I did. And, you know, I just keep doing more and more for the group. I feel like we have to keep carrying on this tradition. And because the guys that came before us did it so we could have this. So if you're new, man, just do it. Do it for the guys that did it before you. Um, I enjoy it, though. I, I, I like it a lot. And, you know, during the pandemic, I also decided it was time to do this podcast. Because I've always thought, man, I could do a podcast. I want to do a podcast. Because I listened to a lot of podcasts. That was one of the ways I stayed sober early on. Like, come home and sit there and stare at the clock, but listen to a podcast. Or I'm on the bus going to work. I'm listening to an AA podcast like I was just like taking as much in as I could because I needed it I was a mess I was a real mess but it helped me and I'm hearing the voices out here you know Colorado and Longmont Frederick Denver like I was like these guys gotta get on tape man they're so awesome and uh, so I finally did it and uh, it wasn't long after I thought of the idea of doing it. Of course, I, you know, we're working from home and everything. I have more flexibility. 
that, um, you know, long, long after that, here we are with like 30 episodes or something like that. It's so crazy. <laughs> and, you know, I love it. You know, it, it's a lot of fun. And I feel like it's a, a way of me giving back. You know, some people are like, oh, you're doing so much service and whatever. And I just want to be like, yeah, but this is fun. You know, I like doing this. Um, and if anybody could do it, this guy can't. Because I know all this stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm a genius, you know, computer genius. <laughs> but uh, AA made me that way. Like I tell people, this is where I get my superpowers. And people at work don't understand that. You know, they just think I'm awesome. I don't have to share my secret, whatever, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, that's my story. What it was like, what happened, and here I am, you know? So. Well, wow. I think you have an incredible story, and you're very talented. I think your listeners will find it a, a real treat to be able to hear your story recorded after you record everybody else's story. So. Well, thanks. Thank yeah. you. So if you had to sum up your story in two sentences, mm -hmm. what would it be? Let's see. I drank because I wanted to fit in. And then I quit when I didn't care about fitting in. Basically, I gave up my cool card not understanding that God was going to give me a platinum cool card. You know? <laughs> I wasn't cool anymore. Trust me. When I told God, I don't want to be cool anymore. He was like, yeah, you haven't been cool for like 20 years, pal. <laughs> he broke it to you gently then. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I just didn't understand that I was going to be so much cooler sober, you mm -hmm. know? So, you know what? I handed in my cool card. But the one that God gave me is like platinum. So, yeah. So if you could give your day one self a piece of advice, what would it be? Um, well, I guess I'd have to say what worked for me is to uh, don't say no. To, to being a... Uh, when you're asked to do something fuck excuses don't say no if i put a quarter of effort into my aa that i put into drinking mm -hmm. i'd be doing a lot more service mm -hmm. you know but it wasn't until i started saying yes i'll set up chairs yes i'll make coffee that it worked for me well so. i think that we're all happy that you said yes and created this podcast for other alcoholics to hear stories and that's how we make connections and thank you for being on your own podcast today <laughs> Kayla thank you for hosting it you got a great radio voice thanks for doing this you're awesome Kayla thank you for hosting the Recovery Edgecast fantastic job and thank you listeners for checking us out Remember, you can check out more of our episodes at recoveryedgecast.com. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and wherever you like to enjoy your podcasts. We'll see you next time.